Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Aaron Bluedorn from Bluedorns coming up in a little bit. But first, uh, I'm joined by my co-host this week. He is a passionate advocate for the Houston food scene. Matt Harris, welcome back to the show. How are you? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay, sir. I'm doing okay. So, Matt, before we dive into the news of the week, I did want to note just very briefly that this is episode 150 of this particular podcast. We've been at this for a little over three years now. It's kind of astonishing to me. I, I didn't know when I sat down and sort of pitched this idea to the some of my Gal Media colleagues that, that it would still be happening three years and 150 episodes later, but I just want to take this opportunity to thank the listeners who have given this podcast an audience and make it uh, viable and and you know, whenever I'm I'm out in public, it seems like somebody inevitably comes up to me and says, you know, how much they like the show or how much they, you know, how much value they get from it, which is which is great. And then there's all the the people behind the scenes, uh, you and the other co-hosts, Felice Sloan, uh, Rebecca Masson, Linda Salinas, Mary Clarkson, and of course our beloved producer Michael Carroll, who uh, I don't think he's ever actually spoken on the podcast. That is correct, sir. But you can tell when. You can tell when things are really rolling because you will occasionally hear him chuckle. Indeed, this obviously would have been a great uh, place for my, you know, what happened before episode 150 joke. That's debatable. No time. No time. All right. <laughs> but no. Well, I, congratulations. Thank you very much. And, and thank you for your part in that. And, and really, it, it is it really is the listeners who... Who make this worth doing? And I'm, I'm, you know, I was. I think I shared this once. I was, I was walking to the farmers market a few months ago, and guy rolls down his window and goes, "Hey, I'm listening to your podcast right now." It's like that's that always feels good, and I'm I'm just so happy that people have made it part of their routine. So well, let well us said. Uh, let us move on. Let us dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one. The, the past week has been a tough one for restaurants closing after one or more employees have tested positive for the coronavirus. Just, I mean, Brennan's, Riel, El Topo, Rosie Cannonball, Mad. And then there's restaurants that, that didn't have someone test positive, but uh, Cata Robata had an employee test positive for antibodies which means that at some point during the pandemic, they had the disease. So out of an abundance of caution, they they decided to test everybody and make sure everybody was healthy. Uh, Cultivari did the same thing. Uh, I talked to Tony Lerman from El Topo. One of their cooks lives with his family. Other people that he lives with had contact with someone who tested positive. So out of an abundance of caution and, you know, they, they canceled service for the weekend. It's just, it's, uh, it's scary out there. It, it feels like the virus is making its way through Houston, maybe in a way that it, 
it hadn't previously. Yeah, I, I it's tough. It's a, it's it's really challenging right now. It's 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 been really challenging. You know, uh, it's a it's a little. I don't know. It, it, it's hard to draw any any real conclusions. Uh, it, it's there's a sense of you know it, now it's it's just every positive case is this you know we're one step closer to you know impending doom. Um, I don't know. Well, it, it's also it, confusing. It, right. I mean, I I I share kind of your confusion in the sense that you know, younger people are getting the disease, they are better able to sort of survive it. So, you know, the case rate, the, the hospitalization rate has gone up or the, the number of people hospitalized with the disease has gone up, but the number of deaths is, is for Harris County is still very low. I mean, it's fewer than 400 as of Monday when I, when we're recording this podcast. And I guess there's there's a whole bunch of sort of factors and and i've talked about some of them over the past couple of weeks but you know the houston chronicle had an article last week that you know restaurants aren't they're not required to disclose this information and they're not even required to close although that does seem to be the the standard response i mean do you do you have an opinion about whether restaurants should disclose and should close when an employee tests positive well yeah i will say uh, on the general, I'm a big fan of transparency. I think that's the best way to respond to to this and most things. Um, certainly within this sort of category of public health, um, closing. I'm not sure. It, that's that's not for me to answer. I I would leave that up to the to the establishments to decide, and then I'll decide if I'm going to patronize or not. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the one of the things about this, these recent closings is that it's it's touching places that I have eaten at. Right. You and I have both been to Cotarobata since it reopened for dining. And I felt very good about their practices in terms of spacing the tables far apart, having hand sanitizer available when you walk in, having employees who wore masks and gloves and you know, single-use condiments and all that stuff. I, I, I felt like they were taking their th- those practices very seriously, and that made me feel comfortable dining there. And so it's frustrating is the wrong word, but it 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 just you know it's just um, I'm not sure what the right word is to be honest with you. It, when when it seems like a restaurant is doing everything that they can. And this, they're still getting touched by this. It's, uh, you know, it just it just sort of goes to the extent that, that the, you know, the virus is kind of on its own, on its own timeline, I guess. No, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I think there's a proportionality um, sort of across the board with a lot of this. You know, let's, uh, was it the uh, swine flu about 10 years ago? We had 60 million cases in the U.S. Um, So it's just, um, you know, I realize this is a different virus. Um, There have been, you know, a number of deaths 
not here locally, uh, but these are uh, life is a series of, of calculations of risk and rewards. Um, and I, it, this this movement towards every positive case sort of being the uh, end all be all is is to me very dangerous. Yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, I think that we do have to kind of live with the reality of the virus, and and so I'm I'm glad that businesses are now required to mandate that people inside them wear masks. I think. You know, everything that I've read suggests that masks are a key component of uh, allowing people to gather in spaces and, and help prevent the spread of the disease. So, you know, I, I think that that's all to the good. I know it's it's less practical at restaurants, but, you know, once you're seated at the table, you can take your mask off. You're Again, you'll be far enough apart from other people. But, you know, as you're moving around the restaurant, entering, leaving, going to the restroom, that sort of thing. You know, I think the masks are a, a reasonable safety precaution. Uh, we've talked about that before. You know, I, I think I said it's a courtesy we extend to each other. Totally agree. And again, you know, we can put this under the uh, confusing aspects of this, you know, whole COVID is how how masks became the flashpoint of it. It just is, will probably be one of life's great mysteries. I just can't understand <laughs> the challenge that someone has with wearing a mask in public. So, no, I mean, I, I agree with you. Uh, I wear a mask anytime I'm in a public, in a public place, not, not when I walk my dogs and I'm outside and I'm far apart from people. But if I, I go to a restaurant or a grocery store, I went to target last week with a mask on, you know, any, any of that kind of environment, Hopefully, hopefully everyone listens to this is wearing a mask in similar settings. Um, now, you're, of course, if you're in Harris County, you're legally required to. So, you know, hopefully that helps slow some of the spread of this. Right. Um, and the flip the flip side being, you know, if I go out in public, you know, I, I, I'm not some grandma killer who, you know, wants to intentionally, you know, infect the public. It's just <laughs> right. Yeah, we we could all do uh, with dialing down the rhetoric a little bit. There you go. All right. Let me move on to topic number two because this is a big deal. Uh, Johnny Rhodes announced on Instagram that he will close Indigo in July of 2021. Indigo is the neo soul food restaurant, a tasty menu restaurant. Uh, in North Houston that has been an absolute phenomenon since it opened in 2018. I was going back through it. Uh, it made best new restaurant lists from Texas Monthly, GQ, Food and Wine, Eater. Uh, Johnny got a James Beard nomination, a semifinalist nomination for his work there as a, a rising a best new chef or a rising star chef and uh time magazine named it one of the places to go in 2019 i mean it's uh it's just one of those like uh you know a little a little high fidelity right to talk about musicians is it better to burn out or fade away uh indigo is definitely going to burn out it's not going to fade away yeah it's uh you know i think uh 
and Johnny alluded this in in his post or several posts here recently. I think the dream has always been bigger for him. And, uh, you know, to me, you know, personally, that's exciting. Uh, I've learned a lot um, and feel fortunate to, to have spent time um, at Indigo and learn from more about uh, the vision, if you will. Uh, you, you know, Brougham Groceries just opened during all this pandemic stuff is already on my regular rotation. So um, a little sad that Indigo is closing, but that's momentary and um, and a little bit selfish. And I think if I had to sum it up in one word, it would be excitement. Yeah, I I mean, you, you touched on kind of what I want to dive into, which is that uh, you know, in the Instagram post, he sort of says that the, the plan is to to really focus on Broham Soul Food Grocery, the, the grocery store he opened in Indigo in April, and to extend its mission by uh, building out a farm. And he has secured that farmland, and they have already begun kind of clearing the, the woods so that it will be uh, able to be able to be farmed and will be productive and, and he's going to bring, you know, everything that he's doing at Broham into a bigger, better space with just more. And, and I, you know, I, I know he feels that sense of mission to kind of bring, I mean, real food, not, not packaged, not processed, you know, nutritious food um, to that Lindale park, Trinity Grove, kind of section of Houston. And, you know, I think it, at this point, really all all we can do is kind of enjoy this last year of Indigo. I mean, I, I'm i certainly, you know, looking at the calendar, trying to figure out, you know, how quickly I can get in there. And then, you know, I'll probably make at least one more visit in 2021 before it goes away. And and then just support, you know, Broham and, and I believe it's called Food Fight Farms. Yes, sir. You know, and it's uh, it's a big vision, and I would not a word that I would use very often, but you know, it ha- it, it's a potential game changer. And hats off to him for taking on the challenge. Matt, uh, I think you mentioned that you've been out there to see the farm. I mean, do you do you have a sense of kind of what's uh, what's in store? Um, I think it's just the beginning and, uh, I do have a little bit of a sense, just, uh, fortunate to, um, have a little insight in Johnny's vision. So it's a long-term vision. Uh, and, uh, you know, those things take work. So fair enough. I I saw they started a GoFundMe. They want to raise about $250,000. $250,000. I, I wish them a lot of luck in that. That's a, that's a big lift, but he's got a big platform. So, and he's come, you know, I mean, I, I think about, I think about him showing me that location in 2016 when he and, and his wife, Shauna first signed that lease. I think about the meal that he served me and Phaedra cook in his apartment in 2015. And I, you know, this is, you know, to, to go back to the music analogy, this is like, 
you know, this is like seeing the Beatles in, uh, in Berlin. It's like, you, you know, you never would have imagined they would become the most famous band in the world. It's like, I never, I, I never would have guessed, you know, at those very early meetings that it would become so acclaimed and become such a phenomenon. But, you know, the elements were there. You could kind of see the bones of the thing and that, that Johnny was so passionate and, and had a really clear vision for what he wanted to accomplish. And, and then just, you know, it's, it's sort of good luck that the, the rest of the world embraced it. Right. I think from the, from the very initial visit of, you know, the passion was, was what, what came through and, and, and you could see, and the food as well, you know, let's not, uh, Let's not forget, you know, the food has to stand up, um, and it did. And and uh, when you combine that, the story, the vision, the passion with the food, you had, you know, something that was really compelling. Absolutely. All right. And let us uh, topic number three: Pappas Restaurants, one of Houston's most prominent restaurant groups, closed five locations, including three inside the Loop. And one in the Galleria, Yaya Mary's, their Greek concept, Pappas Shrimp Shack down in the 45 South and 610, Papa Doe on Richmond in the Upper Kirby area, and the Little Pappas Seafood on Shepherd Drive. I think what's unusual is that, you know, Pappas is so prominent and so successful. They don't typically close restaurants, so this does give us some sense of kind of what's going on in terms of the economic prospects for restaurants and and you know i at the at the prompting of our our good friend michael fulmer i i, I went into hcad and looked these properties up the company actually owns the land for all of these so this is not this is not a lease situation where they're moving on from from buildings they don't own this is this is their dirt matt what do you what do you make of this decision and and is there any one of these in particular that you're going to miss um, I think it speaks to the reality of where we are present day. Um, I, you know, if Papa's was going to close any locations, I guess, you know, if these would probably be, someone said, which ones do you think will close? I would probably mention a few of these, but they're a big group. They're very successful. <laughs> Certainly they don't need any advice from me. Um, uh, you know, I do. Uh, uh, we had a pretty good meal at um, Yaya Mary's uh, right before all this COVID started. So that, uh, I, you know, that'll that's a nice little memory, and life will go on, and Papa's will be fine. And yeah, don't don't shed too many tears for Papa's, right? They do just fine. Uh, I'm with you. Uh, Yaya Mary's was a restaurant that I have only sort of come to appreciate in the last couple of years, but you know, those lamb chops, those, those mixed grill platters, the, all the little Greek touches that they kind of put into that place. I think that was kind of a, a special restaurant. And of course, you know, little Pappas, you know, just a, just a really comfortable place when you, you know, it seems like they were always running like super affordable uh, specials on, raw oysters or you could get like a, a platter of really expertly fried gulf coast seafood i mean not that it was ever cheap but the you know the company is certainly known for its portions and so you you were not going to leave hungry no matter what 
that. So um, no, and, and those I, two and, kind of stand out for me. Yes, sir. You know, and, and that little Apopis is is right in the neighborhood, and that's also where uh, they would trot out some of their R and D dishes, which was you know always kind of fun. And uh, yeah, just a few no- a fair number of visits there, just going into the bar area, sitting at a cocktail table and having some oysters and yeah good times absolutely all right matt that does it for the news of the week we'll be right back with our restaurants of the week stick around you're listening to what's eric eating so matt for our restaurants of the week i want to talk to you about a couple of new places in the heights the first is Bibor Pacific. This is the Filipino restaurant. It started in Austin and came to Houston. Uh, that Austin location actually recently closed, so it is it is now a solely Houston concept. Uh, Matt, I'm just going to sort of throw it to you. What did you think of our our meal at Bimore Pacific? I uh, um, that's a little nugget of news for me. I didn't realize their Austin location had closed. Um, the, uh, you know, it was one visit. Um, I think with everything that that's going on, it's, uh, it's, uh, I probably need to go back one or two more times to, uh, get yeah, a more I, informed opinion. Yeah. I, 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 I'm with you in the sense that I had kind of high expectations. I've heard a lot of good things about it, uh, both from friends in Austin and, and people in Houston who have tried it. And I don't feel like we caught it on its best day. You know, we got the the sweet chili, the sweet chili wings that, you know, maybe didn't have enough sweet chili sauce on them. You know, I like the the Filipino barbecue, which is that kind of Korean style cross cut short rib uh, with some pickled onions, and I like the uh, the uh, shrimp and pork lumpia, the little egg rolls. But yeah, there's just something about the a couple of dishes that just came up a little bit short. Yeah, I think uh, that's that's probably fair. Again, you know, one visit, kind of mid afternoon. You know, I'm I'm certainly willing to to go back. It's uh, but yeah, uh, yeah. I, I guess heard... the, no. I guess I guess the biggest flaw was you know we had that uh, that bacon fried rice and it just it wasn't like hot enough in temperature. Which is just never a never a good sign. It it just means the the kitchen maybe isn't quite firing on all cylinders. Yeah, I did enjoy the texture on that rice quite a bit, but uh, it it was off temp a little. So, yeah. all right. Well, I don't want to I don't want to dwell. I mean, I I think we're gonna we'll give Be More Pacific another shot here in in a few weeks, and I I hope to catch it in a at a better version of itself. Um, I do want to just briefly talk to you about Tenfold Coffee. This is the new shop that opened up kind of behind Johnny's Gold Brick on Yale Street, owned by Jacob Ibarra, who has worked in both Seattle and Melbourne, arguably two of the world's most coffee-obsessed cities. He has purchased coffee all over the world in various capacities, and so uh, he's bringing all of that expertise back home. Uh, Matt, I know you've been up to Tenfold a couple of times. What did you think of uh, the new Heights Coffee Shop? Um, you know, I had a, 
pretty outstanding pour over there day one. Really liked everything about it. Like the space, like the setup, like the really liked my pour over. Uh, Jacob was there, got to talk to him for a little bit and you know, he's he's got a great reputation. Um both locally, nationally, and internationally. And I think it's great news for Houston and great news for coffee drinkers. Right. I, I agree with you. I, I mean, you know, he, he introduced me to a, a pour over with a coffee from, from Ecuador. And, you know, when he says, Oh, you know, I got it from, I got it from this farm. He knows the farmer. And, and I know that that's not unique. I mean, I know, I know David Buer travels to buy, coffee beans i know max gonzalez from uh catalina and amaya travels to buy coffee beans so i'm not i'm not saying that it's necessarily unique but i'm saying that when when a coffee roaster or a coffee buyer has a personal relationship with the coffee farmer i think that's good for us as consumers and more of that is a good thing agreed agreed and it's just this is a big this is big news in the coffee world for for houston yeah yeah anytime someone with kind of jacob's expertise and experience uh it it would be like well you know i'm going to talk to aaron bluedorn you know any you know who's worked in a, in a world-class restaurant in new york um anytime someone with that level of expertise decides to open a business it just makes every you know it makes everyone step their game up just a little bit daddy that's what we call a segue yeah you know what i think we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up right there matt thank you very much Thank you. I'll be right back with Aaron Bluedorn. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? I am joined this week by Aaron Bluedorn. He is opening a restaurant in Montrose, conveniently called Bluedorns, later this year. Aaron, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Thanks for having me, Eric. Thanks for doing this. Um, You know, I always like to kind of start these interviews at the beginning can you tell me a little bit about kind of how you became interested in being a chef and kind of where your what your career was like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, uh, it's actually the only real job I've ever held um, is is working in a kitchen. Uh, I started off uh, at a little greasy spoon on Bainbridge Island uh, in Washington, where I grew up, uh, called the Streamliner Diner. At the age of sixteen. Um, there, I was a dishwasher prep cook, um, and you know it, it, it was funny. I, I never found a, another job or a place where I felt more at home than the kitchen. Um, and it just, you know, whatever I did after that. Uh, so anyway, I got my start there. Tried to go to real college at Humboldt State. That didn't work out so well. I wasn't as interested in. Uh, things that I felt like I wasn't going to be uh, using later on in life. And I just uh, found more practicality in the kitchen. I worked at a, when I was there, I mean, if you know anything about our kid California, it's kind of like the hippie capital of the United States. <laughs> um, and uh, I, uh, I was, uh, well, I started off as a dishwasher at a vegetarian restaurant and um, moved my way up and ended up running the kitchen uh at the age of 20 and then realized that I needed to get, uh, needed to get serious about it and go to culinary school. So went to the CIA and, you know, caught the bug and the rest is history. So. Right. So, I mean, obviously you've been sort of most 
most prominently associated with your time at Cafe Baloo. You were the executive chef there for six years. What was that like? I mean, it's it's um, it's a high profile it's a high profile place. Obviously, Daniel Baloo, one of the one of the most famous French chefs in America. I mean, yeah, I I I know this sounds sort of silly, but but what was it like, kind of working in in such a high profile environment? I mean, it was. Uh... It was daunting. It was, uh, you know, every uh, every day walking in, I felt like I had my my stomach in my throat. I was nervous, um, especially at the beginning. Uh, you know, that's a that's a tough. Uh, you got big shoes to fill. You've got, uh, you know, lots of uh, there's plenty of uh, visibility for the rest of uh, the city. You know, and and uh, arguably the rest of the country too. And working for Danielle is. Uh, you want to live up to his expectations, and it it was it was very nerve wracking. But that's what makes you better, and that's what continued to push me every day. Um, was was I knew I had to live up to it and do more. And it's not just living up to what everyone's done in the past. It, you know, from Andrew Carmelini to Gavin Kaysen to uh, Bertrand Chamel, they've all left their mark on on that restaurant, and it was. I felt like I had to do the same thing. And that's, I, I constantly thought, how am I going to make this restaurant better than I received it as a chef? So so what would you say were maybe the, the one or two things you're the most proud of in terms of leaving your mark on the place? Um, I would say that uh, we, we established these, uh, these voyage dinners uh, that I was doing um, probably about once a once a season and where we would invite a, a chef from, um, from the, the region of cuisine that we were going to focus on in, in that menu. Now, let me backtrack a little bit. The, the menu at Cafe Balloon for the, for the whole 20 years that it's been open has had, it's been the same format where it's four different uh, muses of Danielle's and each. So there's La Tradition, the, Saison, Portage, and Voyage. And the Voyage section was was a, a place where we would explore a, a different uh, cuisine uh, from around the world. Now, I was very conscious of the fact that that looked like cultural appropriation, which scared the living uh, daylights out of me. Uh, and especially, you know, I knew that if we got reviewed or if anyone uh, kind of caught wind that we, we were still doing that, uh, there better have been a pretty good reason behind uh, or reasoning behind it, uh, behind why we chose that, 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 that style of food. And, and where did we learn? Did we, did we just pick up a cookbook or did we, uh, did we go do the time and due diligence? And so I, I decided that it was important for me to set up uh, these dinners where we'd invite these chefs and we'd have these collaborations. And I, you know, of course getting Danielle excited about something like that wasn't very hard, but um <laughs> so we had, we had we had a blast. Um, some of my my were uh, we had Pierre Chum, the Senegalese chef, um, come in and uh, cook a dinner with us. And to find the similarities between um, French cuisine, American cuisine, and Senegalese cuisine isn't very hard, isn't as hard as you think. There are so many similarities, and it was fun to to experience that. Um, and actually, our GM at the time at Cafe was a man uh, by the name of Sharif Mabouj. And he will actually be our GM at, at Blue Dorn as well. And 
it, it was fun for him to be involved in that, and and we really uh, we really had a blast. But you know, all those dinners um, were were something that I really felt strongly about. Um, and I, I think as well, um, bringing uh, more more of the green uh, Union, uh, Union Square Green Market to Cafe Balloon, uh was something I did a lot of. And not to say the chefs didn't do it in the past, but we we really incorporated a lot of that into into the menu at Cafe Balloon by by featuring those farms and and such and getting getting the opportunity to go visit the farms and, you know, cook with the, with the farmers and then bring that food back to New York was also something I was very proud of. So. Yeah, no, that, that, I mean, those are great answers to that question. Um, how did you, all right. So, all right. So you grew up on the West coast, you, you worked in New York. How did you make the decision that when it was time to step out on your own, that you were coming to Houston? Um, so I've gotten married. I, so I met my wife at working at a cafe. She was working for the main office, uh, for Danielle. And, you know, I, it, it was just one of those things where, uh, you know, as, as chefs, as much as, you know, everyone kind of labels us, uh, party animals or whatnot, we, we don't really have time to go out that much. If you're, if you're serious about your craft and, and trying to keep, water here at the restaurant all the time so uh but anyway so i i, I fell in love with someone who i work with <laughs> but uh anyway then uh you know of course what you do and when when you get married right you start making plans and where are we going to raise a family and what makes the most sense and um you know this is this had always been a goal of mine to open a restaurant and that had to factor into it and again it goes down to the reality uh, well are we going to go somewhere where we don't know anyone and have no family and have no support system and just open a restaurant out of the blue, or are we going to, are we going to put our roots down, uh, somewhere where, uh, there's where we want to, you know, where we want to raise a family. And, and the more I had been traveling here, i got to know the local chefs. i got to eat or eat around the city. Um, and I just fell in love with Houston and it's, it's dining scene. Um, I didn't feel like I would be opening a restaurant to to necessarily uh, fill a gap, but I would rather rather want to open a restaurant where I could add to it and um, and be able to uh, play you know whatever whatever small role I can uh, in the in the restaurant community here. And I just felt like this was such such a great fit for what I wanted to do. So 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 how long into your uh, getting to know your your now wife, did it did it take for her to sort of explain that she's uh, part of restaurant royalty in, in Houston? Well, that's actually a really funny story. So um, I had no clue. I, I, I was like, oh, she's Greek. Her, her family owns a few Greek diners here down in Houston, whatever. You know, I kind of wrote it off and wasn't really focused on that. And she she is very uh, modest, and especially in New York. You know, I, I'd never been to Houston before. I probably had never even dreamed of living there um at the time and she was like oh yeah you know you, you'll you'll enjoy talking to my father you know he's he's been doing this his whole life but you know again i had this picture of my big fat greek wedding and that's what i was getting into <laughs> and then i and then we go to a wedding in austin and her dad looks at me and goes hey come on let's get out of here let's go let's go uh let's go play show and tell as he said and <laughs> 
<laughs> I was just blown away. I remember coming back to the hotel after, you know, Victoria had been doing her bridesmaid things and saying, you did not tell me the magnitude of it. I don't even think I realized it. I actually came to Houston and did a tour of the warehouses. And, and I mean, the, the thing that stood out, stood out to me was all of his employees had worked for him for 20 plus years. And those were the ones that were like the junior. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They, wow. they don't so, yeah. yeah. So much for, uh, <laughs> so much for those small Greek diners. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's a little, it's a little more ambitious than that. It's a little more successful than that. Yeah, yeah, I know, but you know, so. All right, so, all right, so you're, you're opening in the, uh, the former uh, passive provision space on Taft. How did you, how did you kind of settle on that, and and what do you think your your plans are in in terms of what the space is going to look like? Okay. Um, well, first of all, I'd love to show it to you someday, Eric. Uh, and before, once we get all finished, you know, I'll give you a little pre-tour. But um, so it wasn't my first space. Uh, you know, I think it was reported on, and it's very true that we were looking at the Black Lab, and I was looking for a, a standalone restaurant here in Houston that would be, you know, large enough for about 100 seat dining room. Excuse me, and a um, and a uh, you know a private dining room, and then a bar. And hopefully some outdoor door area. And the Black Lab seemed to have all the, the right fittings. It's just, at the end of the day, um, it's such a beautiful space. It's such a beautiful setting. Um, it just didn't work out. And, you know, it would have taken a lot of work, just like we've done here at uh, 807 Taft. But I think um, after that deal started to get a little bit shaky, this had already, always been in the back uh, back of my mind as being an option. And once we started looking at it, started looking at what we wanted to do in the space and kind of lived in it, lived in, you know, take, taking a few uh, drives around Houston, I really um, was excited uh, to land here because we've been able to create um, ambiance inside the building that, uh, that kind of echoes what is outside to a certain extent like as the you know the design is is we wanted it to be timeless but uh appropriate to the age of the building which is uh somewhere in the the 30s and 40s um it was actually it's funny if you look at the it's the building were or was initially one building right and then there was another building and then they built one piece to put the two together and uh so a lot of our design has kind of followed that um that path uh, to to do justice to this, you know, I I think it's a pretty stunning building uh, out here in the the middle of the Fourth Ward um, that was built mid century. Now, um, not only did it have pass, right? It had uh, they had uh, gravitas, and then you know, of course, Anton's before that, and just all that history to be. And it's not one of those, you know. I know in in real estate, people will talk about snake bitten properties where you know, a restaurant's gone in and uh, hasn't done so well. Those three restaurants have been amazing. So there's <laughs> there's there's something in the water over here, and I wanted I wanted to be a part of it. So, <laughs> well, good. So so how's that? How's the construction coming along? I mean, do you have a a rough timeline at this point for for when you'd like to open? You know, I we do, uh, and I'll just we're we're looking to finish up construction in the next month. And uh, mid-August is 
<laughs> is what we're gearing towards. Uh, I can't, you know, I, I wish I could, I wish I could have an opening date that I could announce, but um, with, with the, uh, the pandemic and everything that's going on, I just want to be, well, I think we'll feel better about it in a month to announce it then the actual date, but we could say mid August, you know? All right. And then, and then tell me a little about the food. I mean, you know, it's sort of an open question is, you know, how French, how American, like, what are you, how do you see the menu coming together? Um, I call it American. Um, I think I would be completely remiss if I was to say that there was no French influence. Uh, I think uh, from, from Cafe Blue to Cyrus to Canlis, the, the restaurants that I've been in have all been rooted in French technique, uh, you know, and you can't get away from that. You're always going to gravitate towards that. However, uh, I didn't want to come down to Texas and cook the food I was cooking in New York. Um, that didn't appeal to me as much. We have to be, you know, I have to realize where I am um, and uh, give credit to what's around here, but, you know, give it my own take and my, how I see uh, food is going to be much different than I think uh, other chefs that have uh, had experiences that may, may have been more around here. But to me, it's all about the ingredients and sort of chasing after what the Gulf has to offer, what um, Texas, Louisiana farms from, from all over uh, have to bring, you know, I, am going to be cooking, uh, I'm going to be having tomato dishes in the middle of uh, <laughs> December, which is wild for me, but I, I'm going to get used to it. Uh, we always do. Um, I think uh, there's going to be a big emphasis on uh, Gulf seafood uh, with uh, oysters playing a big, big role. We have a, we have a oyster bar, uh, with a, um, with a live oyster, uh, you know, I guess, what do you call it? An aquarium or a presentation with, with the ice and everything. So we can have that front and center. I mean, oysters have always been a passion of mine from, from having them in, uh, in Seattle, which I think they're fantastic there, uh, to having East coast oysters out uh, on the Cape or uh, in Long Island or wherever out East. And then, uh, down here, Gulf oysters are, you know, to tell you the truth, I, I've been really impressed with some of these, uh, smaller farms. Um, the more trips I take down here, it's not the big old, uh, Gulf oyster, which you're used to, uh, when you go to New Orleans and having, you know, what was it? 25 cent oysters or something. Um, they're, they're, they're really getting a lot better, you know, the murder point, um, just to name one off the top of my head, but we plan on doing a little trip uh, to visit all those farms, uh, that we on, um, sourcing from, uh, hopefully before we open. So, um, I think other, other, yeah, you know, I've divided the, I can talk a little bit more about it. Like, I think I'll always have a foie gras dish on the menu as long as it stays legal in Texas, but I don't think we have a problem there. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I think, I don't think we're that kind of state. I think you're, you're safe there. <laughs> That's good. That's good. You know, free the foie gras. Uh, uh, I think, you know, looking at the menu, uh, there will be a raw bar. There will be, a, you know, a, an option to have the uh, the seafood tower. But my options might not be as traditional. Although, if you want it traditional, we can we can do it there as well. Um, I, I I think I think lots of vegetables. Um, I, I've always cooked with a lot of vegetables and um, and showing you know and taking an ingredient and looking at it and finding out what is the the right way to treat it, whether it's very 
delicately and not that much at all? Or do we want to put, um, you know, some side, I don't know. I think about, I think about asparagus. I guess that was the last one when I saw it at the grocery store. I, I think uh, I want to serve it with uh, a grabiche sauce or, or something like that, which is very French, but to me that, that can also be also very American too. Um, I think uh, there will be, uh, we will have pastas on the menu. Um, we made, I, I think every restaurant I've cooked in the last 15 years has had a fresh pasta program and, and that will certainly be play a role as well. Um, but then, you know, using to go back to where, what I was talking about using local ingredients, you know, if we, if we're using a, a lump crab in a, in a fettuccine dish, you know, that, that to me is a way for us to, to have fun with, with what we have around us. So, um, you know, and then, and I also like, to say there's there will be plenty of meat options available as well we, we you know I, meat was a i don't know whether it's lamb duck chicken those are dishes that i uh are those are meats that i really enjoy playing with and having a lot of fun uh with with within the season that that you're in and what's and i think you know the ability to add uh crawfish to a chicken dish is it's something I did in New York and people looked at me like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, this is, this is a dish that Danielle taught me. And then I come down here and it's, it, it's so much fun to see how Gulf cuisine, you know, relies on Cajun roots and, um, and how, how that actually came from French cuisine. And if you bring that all together, where, where are you? We're all <laughs> same planet. So not to get too existential there, but <laughs> Yeah, you won't. You won't have to explain what crawfish are to people here. We've got a. We've got a pretty good. We've got a pretty good grasp on, on well, all forms of shellfish. I mean, I think that's one of the great, one of the great bounties of the Gulf: the oysters, the crabs, the shrimp. Agreed. Totally agreed. And something I'm really excited about. You know what? Also, is really cool is the bycatches you can get out of the Gulf. You know, I mean, it's not just. They, they don't ju- you don't just have red snapper like my uh, brother-in-law went fishing and brought back some kingfish and I was really excited about it he he wasn't he was like what do you, what do you do with the kingfish I'm like well you pretty much anything you do with a mackerel except it doesn't break down as fast as a mackerel can and you can I mean you can have so much fun with it I mean you can do kingfish in like an escabeche or something like that or or you can do a seared kingfish or a kingfish pokey i don't know i had a blast just playing with this this fish that uh you know he might not have been it might not have been a grouper or a redfish but i mean that that's the kind of thing that gets me really excited um are all these different uh species of whatever well, well right and 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 there's all that so that's always that fun kind of daily special possibility where you know a, a purveyor gets you something off the boat and then it, it goes on the menu that night. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think that that's, that's, you know, you keep your, you keep your cell phone next to you at night. And I, I, I can tell you that it's been more than once that, uh, buzzes and it's, uh, one of it's a purveyor at one in the morning saying, Hey Aaron, I've got this, uh, you know, beautiful turbo we got in or, 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 Hey, we're, we're fishing, uh, John Dory off the coast of uh, off George's Bank. Uh, you want to bring him into the restaurant tomorrow, and, and it's like, oh yeah, 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 <laughs> let's go. <laughs> and then you know it it, you know, it gets there, and you look at your sous chefs. You well, what are we gonna do with it? <laughs> what do we go? What are we having to walk in? What do we pick up from the market today? And that that to me is what's so exciting about being a chef is is being able to is, you know 
play with those ingredients, have, have like sort of a challenge for a second, but then um, make it something really amazing for guests to enjoy. Yeah, you you mentioned your your general manager, uh, Sharif. Oh yes. Did I did I mispronounce that? I'm sorry. Oh, no, you named it. Yeah, I did. Sorry, oh. I'm just I just get excited. <laughs> oh good. Could you just tell me a little bit about him? Because I I mean obviously he's coming, you know he's coming here from New York too. So you know kind of what made that seem like the the right choice. So Sharif and I got to know each other when I first became the chef at Cafe Balloud, and he was just getting hired on as the uh, general manager at the time. He uh, He's from Senegal originally, uh, came over on a uh, scholarship for Western Michigan to play soccer <laughs> and uh, or football, probably. <laughs> and he ended up uh, falling in love and, and staying. He moved to, uh, to New York City, worked in hospitality, uh, did eight years at Boulay uh, as a server, as a captain. And if anyone knows getting yelled at by Boulay uh, is, is, no, is no small feat, and doing it for eight years is practically incredible. Uh, and that, you know, I mean, he just has a the hospitality gene in him through and through. He is a... Uh, warm, uh, gentle guy, but but understands at every step uh, what the guest needs and puts himself out there for it. And you know, I that to me is a huge part of this restaurant is our hospitality. And um, I think that uh, there is so much hospitality in this city that we have to live up to. That I needed someone um, who I trusted right off the bat. Uh, to jump into this uh, with me. And, you know, thankfully he said yes when I asked him uh, about six months ago. And it we've, we've been, we've created, made this dream of mine, this dream of ours and uh, which I'm just humbled and honored by. So it's pretty cool. No, that's, um, that's awesome. No, I, I mean, I, I know, uh, I know Matt's met him uh, a couple of times and has a, a lot of good things to say about him. Yeah, yeah, he's he's something else. So I'm I'm really excited to see him here in in Houston, and he's excited to be here too. So, so can I just ask you about the name of the restaurant? I mean, you, you're naming it uh, Blue Dorn. Yeah. Did you did you think about not naming it after yourself, or or how did you sort of settle on that? I I fought it with every. <laughs> no, no, no. I I to me I I'm not a very uh, I. I I consider myself to be pretty humble, but everybody kept telling me, you know, you've got to name it Blue Dorn. You know what? Nah, nah, it didn't, didn't seem like it was right. And then we've been working with this uh, design firm in in Austin, uh, FOTA. Uh, Jet, Jet Butler is the, the principal. And he's he's done, they, they did all the McGuire Mormon restaurants and, you know, the list goes on. Of, they have a pretty incredible resume. We picked them actually my friend uh james kent from new york used them for his uh last restaurant crown shy um and i just really loved the the work that they did and so we so we started talking to them and i had some other ideas of names and uh they're like you know your last name is one of a kind it's beautiful no i can't do it i can't do it and 
just uh, along with my wife too. Um, I guess when you don't live with a name your whole life, <laughs> makes it easier. <laughs> so, uh, but what really sold it was when they when they did a uh, a mock up a uh, word mark or logo. Um, it was just I felt like there was nothing else I I I could uh, I could go with, and it and it makes sense, you know. And if you're gonna push all your chips in, you might as well. Put your name on in there too. So. <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, so I do. I do have a, just a couple more topics I want to. I want to hit with you. Um, you know, obviously, you, you mentioned Gavin Kaysen, who was your uh, predecessor at Cafe Baloo. Um, he went on to do some pretty special things in in Minneapolis with uh, Spoon and Stable. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, do you? Do you feel like there are sort of similar expectations or, or do you have maybe similar expectations for yourself in terms of what you hope to accomplish here in Houston? Well, if, if I accomplish what he has accomplished in Minneapolis, I will be more than excited. And I mean, I, I, I mean, expectations. Yeah, probably. I'm sure they're out there. Um, I, I just, I'm trying to, to look at it as, as this is, I'm going to, I'm going to do this in my own way. Um, while he is a mentor of mine, um, and I spent I spent the last ten years, arguably, you know, in his footsteps or or trying to create my own. I think that that's learning how to how to create my own identity at Cafe Baloo will be the same thing I'll I'll be looking to do as a as as in in opening up Blue Dorn um, here in Houston. And you know, Houston's different. Minneapolis but uh, they both both cities have very passionate uh, hospitality uh, professionals working on them very you know also amazing chefs that work alongside Gavin Um, I'm yeah I I think that it would be a huge goal to achieve all that he has up there but um, in a different way right my own way (laughs) no for sure I mean, how are you kind of, how are you finding life in Houston so far? I mean, kind of getting to know people in the culinary community. I mean, I love it. I love it. Everyone is, is super welcoming. Um, they are, they help each other out. Uh, there's, you know, it's Chris, Chris Shepard was the, one of the most inviting, welcoming people ever to me. You know, I, I remember I was down visiting uh, my wife's family uh, over Christmas, and I just texted him and Nick Wong, uh, and and they're like, "Oh, come on over to Goodnight Charlie's tonight." And next thing I know, we're you know having beers and watching a live band, and uh, man, things couldn't be better. And I was like, "This is awesome," uh, and you know, it just more and more stories like that. Uh, I, being a part of uh, Star Chefs down here was really great to sort of get an opportunity to mingle it with everyone and get to know uh, get to know people. I mean, I I do know Nick uh, Nick Wong uh, from New York. Uh, I knew him when we were both line cooks when me at Cafe, him at uh, Sambar, and then uh, I actually know Drake Leonard's also really well too because him and I worked at Cafe Blue together uh, 10 years ago when I first started. I actually took his spot on the soup station there when I first got there and he moved to uh, to pasta. So, so uh, it's, the transition's been great. 
I and I I'm just so thankful for everyone for being so uh, so welcoming. All right. Well, and I, I can't let you get out of here without at least asking you about the final table. Your uh, your stint <laughs> on reality television. Uh, you know, I I really enjoyed that show just because it like it was really all about the food. Like there was no backstory. There was like very little of those like confessional type interviews. It was just like, here's a badass kitchen. Here's world-class ingredients. Like go and make the, the best possible thing you can. Yeah. Hey, I had a great time on it. Uh, I learned a lot. Uh, I learned that uh, television is a lot harder than we all think. <laughs> There's a lot that goes into it. Uh, I think they did a really great job. The The producers came to us with this idea for a reality show that was not, was as far away from what we had seen in uh, reality cooking shows thus far. Because, you know, you got to create drama. And to them, the drama was in us creating our dishes on time and, and making sure it came out right. And... You know, they were going to bring in, a, they brought in, you know, incredible talent from around the world and getting to meet some of those chefs was amazing. Uh, I think they were a little frustrated when we all didn't create more drama. <laughs> you know, I think that was, uh, the, by they, I mean the producers and I felt like they really had a tough task to, because when you, when you see really good chefs working, they put their heads down and they don't talk much and it's whatever communication is very small and quick and you know, you're, you're back on focused on your job and you had to be to get whatever we had uh, up in an hour. And um, yeah, I just thought it was funny that, <laughs> that it was, but no, I, I agree with you how it came out. Uh, how it translated to to actual television was great. If you if you really love the craft, um, it was something that uh, was fun to watch for sure. Yeah, they couldn't like they didn't have like the mechanisms to like create a villain or like all the usual or you know there wasn't like hot Cheetos or or like tiny pans, you know all the all the stupid gimmicks that you see in a lot of uh, in some of the other shows. Yeah, no, there wasn't, and it, to me that was that was great because it was an opportunity for us to to showcase, you know, what we love doing, and that's and that's cooking under pressure, and uh, and making something great uh, right before everyone's eyes. So it was it was fun for sure. So are are you good on TV, or or, or you know, do you do you aspire to do anything else? Or are you you good? I'm I'm good. I'm good. It, I, I like running restaurants more. I like uh, this is too much sitting around when you do TV. It's just it's what I love about a restaurant is there's always something to do, something pressing, something that needs to be taken care of. And you're just you, your day. You literally start off by walking in and you're swept away and the rest. It just it just flies by. Right. <laughs> to TV. It's like, all right. All right. Let's stop. Get the lighting right, camera. Are we good, and then you know, right. right? Boom is in the shot. You know, you gotta you gotta keep the mic out of there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Goes forever, and then and you feel like you accomplished nothing. <laughs> but you know, it's different. Well, Aaron, thank you for for doing this. I really appreciate it. The uh, I can't let you get out of here without uh, the lightning round. Five easy questions, five short answers. 
just say the first thing that comes to mind. Uh-oh. Uh, Aaron Bluedorn, what is your favorite ingredient? Mushroom. What is the first band you ever saw in concert? Overture. What is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive-thru. Dicks. No. I, I asked people for their their favorite Houston sports figure. That might be a little premature for you. Do you have a, a favorite Seattle sports figure, past or present? Um, <laughs> Ken Griffey Jr., man. <laughs> that is, I, that, I think that's, a, I would have accepted Marshawn Lynch, maybe, or, uh, I don't know, Steve Largent, but yes, Ken Griffey Jr. is a great answer. There we go. And then, uh, and finally, when you go to a pizzeria for the first time, what are your go-to toppings? Go-to toppings. Um, wow, that one's, that one actually stumped me. Uh, olives and sausage. All right. Aaron, give us the, the website and the social media for for Blue Dorn. Okay. Uh, BlueDornRestaurant.com. Uh, Blue Dorn, at BlueDornHTX in, uh, on Instagram. And at Aaron Blue Dorn for, for my Instagram. There you awesome. go. Thank you. Eric, thanks so much. That was a blast. Thanks, man. You can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. And as I've said now 150 times, I'll be back next week. One foot in front of the other, you know, one week, one week after the next, eventually you get, you know... One episode, 10 episodes, 50 episodes, 100 episodes, 150 episodes. It's true. You know what happens before 150 episodes? What's that? 149 episodes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well said. <laughs>